Well, good morning, Branch Church, everyone here, and all of our church family online. It is a blessing to be in the house of God and to be with you all this morning. If you're new here and I haven't met you, I'm Sean. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here, and I hope I can shake your hand and say hi to you before you go. Order is important, for without order, there can be not so good things that happen. There can be confusion. There can be disarray. There can even be chaos. We look in our society, there's chaos, or chaos, there's order everywhere. Chaos too, but a little slip there. In our society, there's order everywhere. We look in our court systems, there's a lot of order in there with our judges and prosecutors and um, defendants, jury, you know, everything else. We look in our school systems, there's order with principals and superintendents, administrators, teachers, and students. We even look at sports teams. There's order there. Presidents and general managers and coaches and players. Everywhere we look, we find order, even in the entertainment world. You get on a movie set, there's going to be order. You go to a theme park, there's going to be order. You can't just get on the ride whenever you want. You're going to get in trouble for that. There's order. Order's great because order arranges a process by which things may be worked out. And order, I think, is a very beneficial thing, and I think we would all agree. God, I believe, is the king and the creator of order. And as God has created this world, he has brought great order to it. And as we even procreate, there's great order to it, right? Order keeps going. Even at the smallest micro level of what we can understand our existence to be, there's great order. Every one of us as adults are made of trillions of cells. You take one of those cells, crack it open, you look inside, there's incredible complex order going on there with these little, what seems to be like machines doing amazing things, and you don't even know they're doing it. You're not telling them to do it. They're not checking in with you. It is amazing the type of order that God has put into our bodies and into this world. And wherever God is, which I believe is everywhere, God has given order, commanding order to his creation for his flourishing, and he's particularly given it to us in the church. Now, there is a problem going on in the church of Ephesus as we're continuing on in 1 Timothy. And the problem is this. There is women who are causing disruptions in the gathered church, just like we would be here this morning together uh, to worship the Lord. And so Paul is going to write specifically to them in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, and he's going to write to bring order to the situation. In the process, he's going to teach them specifically the women, to be, to embrace a submissive learning and a submissive functioning in God's designed order. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Before we read and get into the actual verses, I want to spend a few more minutes trying to tackle the setting here. What's going on in Ephesus? It is very difficult to get a perfect picture of what's happening historically. All we know is what Paul tells us, what we can infer from that, as well as anything in the ancient historical world that was happening in that city at that time. And so we have to do a little bit of work. What Paul says, what he says in the rest of the letter, what's going on at that time, and we're trying to recreate the picture so we can better understand the teaching. So what was going on? women were being disruptive, particularly in their speech. How so? 
potentially it was something very critical they were doing. They're being very critical with their speech. Again, we don't know for sure. What were they doing? Were they standing up and shouting at whoever was teaching, questioning their authority? Maybe. Were they trying to get people to doubt what the, the leaders and the teachers were, were teaching in the mixed gathered assembly at the time? Possibly. Whatever it was, they were being disorderly. We may also surmise from the situation that the false teachers could have been influencing these women to do what they were doing. I don't know for sure, but since the letter is tackling false teachers in this church, there's a potential that was going on. What might that have been like? Maybe it was something like, girlfriend, you are free in Christ. Throw off that oppressive patriarchy and you express your feminism and you just be you, girl. Be you. Again, I don't know, but whatever it was, it was disorderly, it was disruptive, and Paul is writing now to correct that. I want to give you a little bit of running context as we come up to these verses. And the reason I want to do this is because I want you to realize and know something that today is a very sensitive sermon. The text here is a very sensitive, and I am with the most pastoral, prayerful heart trying to teach and guide the church in it. Today is not about value, it's about order, which is, you'll see the thread run through the whole thing. So, you can feel free to disagree, you can feel free to even be mad, but I hope that as brothers and sisters, we can talk through these things and, and work through them and try to love the Lord in them together, amen? In chapter two, he addresses the men first, Guys, pray, come together in unity, throw off arguments, throw off the anger, and let's pray. He turns to the women, another specific problem. There was immodest dress going on. He tells them you need to dress better. Be beautiful, but don't be ostentatiously beautiful. Get rid of the provocativity and come in and, and, and be modest in the way that you dress. He's now going to finish speaking to the women, and I didn't finish this before because of the sensitivity and, and the amount of complexity here with these verses. And so we're going to take time and really dive into it together. So we pick up in verse 11. Here's what Paul says. He says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. When he says a woman here, he is not speaking to only single or only married. He's speaking to all the women at that church at that time. And before we get into what the word silence means, Look what the command is. A woman must learn. Women, learn. Grow. Read your Bibles. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know as much as you can. Read as much as you can. Glean from each other. Glean from your pastors. Glean from those good podcasters and writers and devotions that you have. Absolutely. A woman, learn. Learn. It's a good thing. That's a good command. But he gives a manner here in the context of the church setting in which he now says this must learn in silence. Silence can mean two things. It can mean silence as you don't say anything. It can also be silence as in quiet. Silence as in don't say anything, we see that used in Acts like 22 verse 2. But what's interesting here is if you go back in 1 Timothy 2, go to verse 2 with me. The same word is used here, but it's translated differently. He's telling the men to pray for kings and all who are in authority, well, everyone to pray. He says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. The word quiet there is the same word as the word silent he uses now in verse 11. So nine verses earlier, same word, little bit different meaning. To lead a quiet life doesn't mean you don't ever say anything. It's a picture of a life that's not disrupted. 
a life that's peace and orderly. So how are we to understand the word here in verse 11? I think both are true here. The reason I think both are true is because the context is learning. In learning, be silent. That makes a lot of sense because if you're talking, it's much harder to learn and it's disruptive. But I don't think it's be silent, put duct tape on your mouth and never ever speak. I don't think that's the point. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse five, he speaks about women praying and prophesying in the church. So this has nothing to do with be quiet, sit down, zip it, never speak, just know your place. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with order in the church, in the context in which this is going on here. A woman, let a woman learn in silence. Silence here is not a degrading term. This is not, it's not degrading to learn in silence. It's actually a positive virtue. One that we would all take on and all embrace in the learning atmosphere. I think we've all been in classrooms where we've had as a teacher or been a student and there's another student that's very disruptive and they just love speaking up and drawing attention to themselves. Hey everybody, look at me, look how funny I am. Wait till you hear this next joke, it's so great. I was actually this kid, not in all my classes, but probably about two out of six periods, I would do this. It would depend on the teacher, right? One of my teachers was a sports medicine trainer for our football team. So she was really cool, you know, so we could do whatever we want. And she was also the sports med teacher during the school hours. So I had her third period. And the way that, actually, I think I moved to fourth. Anyway, the, the room was set up like a U-shape. I took my desk out from the U-shape and I sat it right in the middle of the class so everybody could look at me and see what I was doing as I was looking at the teacher. And another, and here I am, yes. That was good. Who said that? That was good. And here I am, doing it again. The Lord's done a lot of work in my heart. That was good. We needed that, thank you. Another class, senior year, uh, I took my desk and I sat it right in front of the door during a test because if anyone came in the room, I wanted them to run through me first, you know, because it's funny. If a teacher told me or any student who's being disruptive to sit down and be quiet, we would all go, thank you, thank you. Please sit down, stop it. So I think we can all agree that silence here, it's not a degrading thing, it's a good thing. This is a good thing in the context so people can learn, walk with God and know him. Now he adds a portion here in verse 11. He says, with all submission, I think that Paul is getting at the posture here of silence. The heart posture behind the silence is one where you are submitting in an orderly way to the teaching and the, the leadership that's going on within that context. We would desire this in our kids. We want them to sit down and maybe be quiet or obey us. We don't want them sitting down on the outside and screaming at us on the inside. No, we want the posture of the heart to be in line with what they're doing. In fact, leading what they're doing. We want them to obey us as parents, ultimately unto the Lord. And I think, could be wrong, I think that's what Paul's getting at here. That heartfelt submission, ultimately to the Lord and what you were doing as he's speaking to women here. Now, good news is that I don't think anybody here has a problem with this. Nobody's jumping up and shouting or being disruptive, so God bless you. This is great. 
the response might be, well, what about a woman who might get up to teach or might need to do whatever? And Paul seems now to tackle something in long those lines. He says, and, verse 12, and, he's adding to verse 11 here, and, he says, and this is really the crux. This is the center of this whole passage, I think, and, and of the whole women in ministry and in the church, and so we're going to really look at this together. I want to first say that I could absolutely be wrong. I could absolutely be right. Don't take my word as gospel. We read, we study, and we have to make decisions. I will do my best to show you both sides, and I will tell you what I think and how I will proceed to best lead this church as one of the pastors. Amen? He says, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. When Paul says, I do not permit, is he saying, I do not permit right now and only right now, or I am not permitting, and this is true for every church everywhere? In other words, is he limiting this to just the women in Ephesus, or is he speaking to women everywhere for the church universal, whenever and wherever that church might meet? So there's a good argument that this is limited just to the women in Ephesus, because they look at this verb, I do not permit, and say, you know what, this is a present tense indicative verb. Indicative just means fact. This is a present factual statement. Paul doesn't use a command here. He doesn't use a future tense. He seems to soften it to something that's more just right now. Spencer, in his Beyond the Curse, he translates it as, I am not presently permitting a woman to do this. Just right now, just in this, but it doesn't go anywhere else. The other side would say, well, good argument. However, if you look at the way Paul uses present indicative, present factual verbs like this, it's hard to limit it without a qualifier. And so if we go to verses like Romans 12.1, if you want to turn to Romans 12.1 with me, I'll give you another example of how he uses the same type of verb. And you can tell me what you think if he's limiting it or not. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a very familiar verse to us, likely as the church. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That first verb there, I beseech you, I urge you. Would we say that Paul is limiting that only to the church in Rome? It would be hard to argue that based on the context and based on the rest of it. Could he? Sure. But naturally reading that, you feel like, I don't know. That's a really hard statement to just stop right here. There's another one. It's first or second. I think it might be 1 Corinthians 4.16. There's a handful of these. 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, I urge you, imitate me. Would Paul tell the Corinthians only to imitate him, but not Ephesus? Imitate me, Corinthians, but not Rome. Imitate me, Corinthians, but not San Diego. I don't think he would say that. And so while Paul could be limiting this here, I think the more natural reading is he's not. I think this is more of naturally understood as a universal instruction that he would be giving to women everywhere in the context as we're talking about here in the gathered church. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Teach has to do with biblical instruction. 
It has to do with the authoritative word that Jesus gave to his church. Now, teaching does have a qualifier here. What is the qualifier? It says, teach over a man. To teach over a man. In this context of the gathered church, men and women together, he says, I do not permit a woman to take on this role or this activity at this place. This does not mean that women cannot ever teach, for in Titus 2, we see women pouring into other women. And I don't think it's wrong that women would even instruct children in their homes and in the church. But there seems to be here a specific role that God has given over to the men and not to the women in this context, in this instance. I do not permit a woman to teach. This has nothing to do with the value of women. This has everything to do with order in which he is trying to bring to the church at this time. I'll get more into value a little bit later. He says, well, let me give you another argument just so you're aware of, of the other side. The other side would read this and go, well, teaching here is probably not just regular, it's probably a negative domineering teaching. So I don't permit a woman to domineer coercively and do this on a man. That's wrong. I, I don't think that's the case for a few reasons. One, there's no qualifier here that says it's negative teaching. And I think it would be kind of obvious that people shouldn't domineer with teaching over people. Does he really need to tell the church that? And secondly, when this word teaching is used, normally it's used as teaching. There's no negative understanding behind it. So I think it's more a just, I do not permit a woman to teach in this context over a man. And then he says there, or to have authority. This word have authority. It's the only time it's used in the Bible is right here. That makes it challenging because we don't have other books or context in order to look at and see how it's used. And outside of the Bible, we go to secular Greek or Koine Greek, we have very few instances of this word. So it becomes challenging to feel like we just got this word down and we know it. Scholars have come down to at least two options and they seem to agree upon this. It can be a positive understanding or a negative. This can be a normal exercising of authority as you would rule, as we would stand and try to lead you, or it could be a domineering, coercive, wrong kind of exercising of authority. How do we go about deciding? Well, if we take a step back and we look at the construction of the sentence, the grammatical construction as a whole, I think we can make some progress, and this is what I did to help make a final decision for myself. The context as a whole is to teach or to exercise authority. There's a word in the middle connecting both of these actions, the word or. When you get phrases like this, you can then go look at these constructions elsewhere and see how they are used and begin to develop rules or principles based on these grammatical constructions. Based on this, in my reading, I've come to learn that when you have this type of construction, you having fun yet? When you have this type of construction, they are either both positive or negative, meaning both actions are gonna be equal on the same playing field of how they're understood. It's not one's positive and then negative or negative and then positive. They're both together on the same playing field. If you wanna know more about that, got a nice book like this and you're more than welcome to look at these guys who have spent so long going after it. If that's the case and seems to be, 
And if teaching is best understood as positive, then exercising of authority must be understood as positive as well. So I don't think Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to do this in a negative way. I think he's permitted it more in just a simple, straightforward way in which he is writing this. Again, this does not have anything to do, this has nothing to do with value. And it's everything to do with the order that he's trying to bring within the church and how he believes that God has set it up as his apostle and follower of Christ instructed to teach the church. Now, you, you hear that and you go, wow, I don't know about that. That seems pretty archaic. That seems pretty offensive. That seems whatever you might be feeling, particularly for you women. I don't know how you're feeling, but I'm sure that that can feel very challenging. Paul is going to give his reasoning now behind this. In the next two verses, he's going to give two reasons, at least one. He's going to ground his reasoning in creation and in the fall to help explain this better. I do want to say one thing that I skipped over. I'm going to backtrack on you just a little bit because I just thought of it. In verse 11, when he talks about submission and learning and submission, uh, submission is a strong word and it can be a scary word depending on the context and your experiences in life. But from God's point of view and the way he's designed it, it's a good thing and it's a beautiful thing. I'm sorry if you haven't experienced it that way, but from God, it is. And I want to say this about submission. Uh, As Christians, we submit to God, Hebrews 12. As Hebrews 2, Jesus is the Lord of creation. He's the redeeming Lord. Everything submits to him. Ephesians 5, we submit to one another. Ephesians 5, wives submit to their husbands. Would we say that we are any less valuable when we submit to God? That that just changes nothing about your value and being made in his image, nothing. Would we say we're any less valuable or degrade your value when you submit to one another? I don't think so. Would we say wives are less valuable or we denigrate their value when they submit to their husbands? No, not at all. In fact, I think a woman should be so loved by her husband that she feels more valuable than him in the process of submitting to him unto the Lord. They should feel even more valuable. Again, it's not about value here. It's about order. And I hope that little piece can just be helpful. Coming back to verse 13, here's his first reason why he is saying this. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Did you get that? Really clear, right? Challenging verse. Here we go. Four, here's the reason why he says this. Adam was formed first. We go back to Genesis 1, God created everything. Six days and he rested. Genesis 2, we get another creation account. Not a separate one, but it takes day six and it blows it up in more detail. God creates the man from the dust of the earth, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He becomes a living soul. Pretty amazing, right? He then puts him to sleep. Well, first he names the animals and he goes, yeah, the hippo, don't really want to take you on a date. The elephant, no, not my type. Kangaroo, a little too jumpy. And he realizes this is, this is not for me. And so God puts him to sleep, takes a rib out, creates the woman, brings him back, and he breaks into poetry. Wow, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. This is incredible. Paul seems to understand an embedded authority in the creation order of man and woman. There's some type of embedded 
authority, leadership, protection, and care type of authority. We're not talking domineering, do what I say, go get me a sandwich. That's not what it's about. Care, protection, and leadership authority in creation. And he seems to believe that that is given to the man. And that is something we see made more explicit as we go throughout scripture. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, who did God call to account? Adam, where are you? We get into Romans 5, and Paul talks about how sin entered the world. Who did he blame? Adam came through one man, the Adam. Maybe I'm misreading that, but that seems to be, as we get through Scripture, made a little more explicit that there's some type of responsible authority given to the man. Responsible authority. Counter-argument. Well, if that's how Paul understands created authority, then the animals should have authority over him because they were made first, right? You're like, wow, that's a good argument. However, if we put it all together in Genesis 1, we see God clearly gave dominion to who? He gave dominion to man, to man and woman to rule the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. He did not give it to the animals. So God already set that in stone. Now with the created order, Paul seems to understand there's a further embedded authority, which becomes more explicit as we go through scripture in the home and now particularly in the church as he's teaching this here. Paul gives a second reason here, it seems, in verse 14. He says, and, that is in conjunction with what I just said, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was being deceived. She fell into transgression. These verses are becoming progressively more difficult to be certain on. This one, why there's a lot of thoughts here, I'm going to spare you from a list. I'm just going to give you what I think is happening here. It seems to be he's created an analogy. Eve and the women in Ephesus. When Eve overstepped her boundaries of that leadership care and protection, throwing off the man's care and protection and authority of what she was doing, she stepped into transgression and she fell into sin. I could be wrong. That, that seems my best understanding for my studies. Analogy, women of Ephesus, if you want to follow and do the same thing and throw off these good authorities in order, if you want to be disruptive, if you want to stop being submissive in this good way and you just want to rule the day and overstep your boundaries in a bad way, you're going to end up like Eve or you're going to be committing sin or falling into something like her. Again, very difficult verse. That's where I've landed at this point. If you desire to see other views, I'm more than happy to help point you in the right direction. Now, even though Eve fell into sin, verse 15 is actually a pick-me-up. Would you believe it? It's a pick-me-up. Nevertheless, nevertheless, she, Eve, will be saved in childbearing. It gets even more difficult in this verse. I'm progressively becoming less certain as I go through the verses with you today. I start here and I slowly do this. But this is the fun part about teaching through scripture, right? We do the whole counsel and we wrestle with it together. Eve will be saved in childbearing. What does that mean? That's very difficult. This is one of those, Paul, please have the stage. So it could be a physical salvation. She will be physically saved through childbearing. Personally, that makes no sense to me. 
Women, do you feel physically saved through childbearing? Maybe I'm understanding that view, but it's just, I'm just, I don't get it. I think it's something more spiritual. If she fell into sin, there's probably a spiritual salvation from that somehow. She will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean this is a work? Women, if you give birth, you're going to be saved. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. That would completely contradict Ephesians 2. By grace, you are saved. It would completely contradict Titus 3. We're not saved by works of righteousness, but by his mercy, we are saved. So it's not a work. I, I would throw that off the table immediately. Here's a really good argument, and I really like this one. George Knight says that this is possibly the bearing of the Messiah. She will be saved through bearing the Messiah. Yeah. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't fall there. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wish I did. I like it. It's an easy answer, and yes, let's just walk. We can move forward now. I like it. George Knight is way smarter than me, so if you want to stand there, that's great. You're in good company. I just, I just couldn't bring myself to just... It's a good, it's a good one, though. The last one, and this is the one that I more fall in line with. The idea of here of being saved through childbearing seems to be a typified role of women that he is using to speak generally of the women there. So his audience of women are likely married or having children. And as he uses this specific role, He's using something, one thing, one area that connects them all together and speaking to them of their role, a role that is God-given to women and beautiful. Eve will be saved. It seems to be, I could totally be wrong here, and I'm okay with that. If she continues in that typified role, not stepping out and throwing off and getting crazy with authority and disruption and disorder. I follow there, I know it's a hard view, and even that one, I, I feel like I could poke holes in it myself, so it doesn't feel very great to stand there. But that's where I'm at. She will be saved, right? Falling in that order of the femininity in which God has given her. Does that, and then he says this, this is interesting. If they continue, he switches from the singular to the plural. He went from Eve to the women in Ephesus. She will be saved, right, continuing on in this order of creation, if they, now I don't think it's discluding Eve, he's just, now he's really pinpointing here, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, faith in Christ, expressing that through love, our actions of being set apart into him, and with self-control. I'll make it as simple as I can, because it, it does feel a little like, ah, he seems to be nevertheless women will be saved ultimately by faith as they then work out that faith in these ways, if that makes sense. So it seems to be they'll be saved as they walk in faith in Christ and they work out the salvation that's worked in by grace through faith and they live according to these design roles in which God has given them. Again, I don't know for sure and I could definitely be wrong here in this instance. What does it look like for men and women to flourish together in the gospel, in the church? I'll give you three things here that we're going to end on. Number one, we must recognize between us as men and women that we are equal in many ways. We are equal. We are equal by nature. We are all made in God's image. And in any kind of role God would have, you don't lose that image. 
You don't lose it. You are made in his image. You're not only made in his image, men and women are equally under eternal judgment apart from Christ, equally separated. Men and women are also equally saved in Christ. Galatians 3.28, no more Jew or Gentile, no more slave or free, no more male or female. We're all one in Christ. The idea there is salvation. There's no more Jews are saved, Gentiles are not. The free people are saved, but the slaves are not. Men are saved, but the women are not. No, those boundaries are gone. Any kind of boundaries like that, we're all one and we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That verse, Galatians 3.28, is not obliterating lines. It's not saying there's no more male or female as if that doesn't exist anymore. If we did run with it that way, it would be really hard to understand marriage and men and women actually getting married if there's no men and women. It would be very difficult when you start processing some of those things. We are also equal as men and women in the filling of the Spirit. When Christ gives us his Spirit and we are filled and we are saved, we equally are filled and strengthened and born again and are given the gift and given the ability to walk in the Spirit's grace. There is an incredible amount of equality here at every level when you think of it in the big picture. Now that we know that, second thing I would say is we can flourish in the gospel as we realize the distinct roles that God has given us as men and as women in our homes and in the church. Men, and we will see this more particularly next week in in chapter three when we get into elders, elders and pastors and deacons. God has given a very specific role to the man to lead to love and to protect not only his family, but also the church. It's a good role and it's a very hard role, but it's a role that God has graciously given to men. Women don't have the exact same role in my opinion based on these verses here and in the chapter that comes next. Not less valuable, not denigrated, but in the order and the way he's designed things, This is what I see and how I will choose and my best ability by God's grace to lead and to love everyone that's here this morning. Women are helpers created to to, to be that suitable helper to help men, to to have dominion over the world and and have families and do wonderful things together, to to bring great respect to their home and, and, and submission to their husbands. Again, submission is not a bad word. It's a word that deals with order. And thirdly here, as we recognize our equality, as we recognize the distinctions within that quality, thirdly, let's encourage each other to walk in our gifts, to walk in our roles. Men, encourage the women. Encourage them to flourish. Encourage them to fly, to use the gifts God has given them for his glory. My hope is that women here would would thrive. You'd be glad you were here and you would be glad to partner with us as men and as pastors and the children and, every, and other women and everyone else is here. I don't see women any less valuable at all. I hold you an extreme value, especially having a wife and two daughters. Especially. The love that comes from my heart at home is great. My heart breaks for the past and the way that women have been treated. And that is horrible and I wish it never happened. And I don't want it to happen to anybody, especially my kids. I look at my wife and she, I feel honestly like she's more intelligent than me in so many ways. And there's often times where she gets a Bible verse before I do. And I'm like, man, 
I'm the one who's supposed to be getting this. How are you understanding Proverbs so well? So smart. But God has given me that the role and the gifting to do this here. It doesn't mean I'm the smartest. It doesn't mean I'm the best. It's just God's gifting and God's design and order of things. So women encourage the men, vice versa. Encourage the men to walk in their gifts, to worship God, to serve well. And I believe you all do that so well. I get lots of praying for you. And it's like, really, when you say that, that means a lot because ministry is not easy. Dealing with myself is not easy. Help, it's hard to, to know how to help and to serve and to love everyone. It's a challenging place to be. So thank you for your prayers and your encouragement to me. I'm just as broken and in need of grace as you all. Now I feel like I'm just rambling. <laughs> I like how Kevin DeYoung ended his discussion on this. And so I'll give that. This is not a degrading thing to women or devaluing them. But he turns around and says, this is really a call for men to step up and lead. And it's like, whew, okay. This is really a call for men to step up and to occupy the roles and positions God has given them that the church may flourish and God's name may flourish as we do it. Amen. Amen. God has given us great order in the world, in our homes and in the churches. As the best of our ability, we're going to walk in that together. Amen. 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 If you have any questions, you don't understand something, you're more than welcome to call, to email, to talk with me. We'll do my best to, to serve you in that and to pastor you in that. Let's pray. Father, there is, I'm sure, a mixed emotions of to this passage. And I ask that you would shepherd us in it and give us your heart for it. You would bring clarity to all of our hearts. If I have misspoke or misunderstood or represented, I deeply apologize and just pray for your, your will to be carried out on this. But Lord, we're taking steps forward as best as we can understand this. And, and thank you for the grace, even in our misunderstandings. Thank you for your mercy in all things. Uh, we ultimately pray, and I know everyone here would agree, both men and women, that we want you to be honored and glorified. We want the gospel to go forth to the lost and to flourish in the hearts of your people. Jesus, we come to your feet. As Mary and Martha, we choose to come, though, to your feet, put down the work, and say, Lord, we need you. Here we are. So, Lord, here we are as a church of men and women and children, and I just ask that you, Jesus Christ, head of the church, would shepherd us. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.